373, Chapter 8. Book Talk begins at 15 minutes and 10 seconds. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 373, A Penny for Your Thoughts. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle at Etsy. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Subbable, the site where you can go to support your favorite content creators. Visit subbable.com slash craftlit and sign up for perks and fun. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Links to all of our sponsors can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello, it is I, back with you again, and offering you a penny, that would be a penny rug, for your thoughts. Because today, instead of English paper piecing-ness, I wanted to let you know about another kind of easily portable, not really quilting the way most people think about quilting, but very traditional craft that you could involve yourself in. And then we'll talk about her land. So this circle penny rug thing that I wanted to share with you today, talk about a rabbit hole <laughs> that I fell down over the last couple of days. What an enormous time suck. This turned out to be not because of anything bad, but because there are so many gorgeous examples out there. Holy smoke. Wow. So it turns out that there is no consistency on the actual recorded scholarly history that I can find on penny rugs. So if you know anything for a fact, like you've read research or, or, you, or you've done research, let me know, because Wikipedia is no help, nor are any of the blogs which have copied and pasted the Wikipedia text. But I did find a few things to share with you about these penny quilts. First, when people on the web refer to penny quilts, they seem to be speaking very specifically about an American thing. And I wanted to say that up front because I have seen examples of things that look like penny quilts from places like Sweden and I think I found one from Denmark. And they are similar. And they're similar because of the fabric that's being used and the technique that's being used. But the penny quilts themselves seem to be a particular thing. And I think I know part of the reason why. Back in the day, <laughs> There was, a, well, you probably know, there were quite a few restrictions placed upon English colonists in the early days of the American colonies. And some of those were, no, that's not true. I think all of them were trade-related. 
things where England wanted tax money or they wanted a percentage of profits or whatever. There were all sorts of crazy reasons for why these things kept happening. But some of those injunctions that were placed upon the American colonists had to do with textiles and textile creation. And when you coupled that with the colonies essentially being quite poor, you know, we because it was a new country, the industrialized revolution didn't happen here until well after the time it happened in the UK. So, so it's a relatively poor country. It is a huge country, comparatively speaking, and that means getting goods from place to place is quite expensive as well. And as a consequence, Americans had to be quite self-reliant and creative. And one of the places that these women, because it was mostly women who made these, one of the ways that these women were creative was in reusing, repurposing old things that were wearing out especially clothing, and particularly wool. Because as we know, wool is an incredible insulator. It has all sorts of magical, mystical properties, wicking moisture away from your body and keeping you warm. And all of this is true. But wool also wears out, as anyone who has worn hand-knit wool socks will tell you. So one of the things these women did back then was they collected all of their scraps, and that included large, like, coats that children had grown out of. And if you couldn't repurpose that fabric or you couldn't give it to your cousin's children, then you had a child-size wool coat hanging around. Or pants, denim, pants. These kinds of fabrics, sturdy fabrics, were really desirable. But once you had taken as much as you could out of that material and used it for making dolls for your children for Christmas, or making mufflers or uh, boot liners or whatever, you're still going to wind up with some scraps left over. And that's where, apparently, these penny rugs came into play. Now, some people's blogs claim that these penny rugs, because they are three-dimensional, they're actually stacked and built and and three-dimensional, There are some bloggers who say that these were used to wipe off your boots when you came in the house. I really seriously question this theory. For one thing, penny quilts seem to be uh, fairly universally rather small, which is fine. I mean, I know you could clean off your boots on a small rug, sure. But they're felted wool, which is fairly sturdy. I kind of don't care how sturdy your fabric is. It's still fabric, and your boots are still boots. And I know they weren't rubber-soled, they weren't vibram-soled, they didn't have waffle stomper patterns all over them. They're still boots. And the detail work on these penny rugs, especially the ones that have survived, and there are some, it's pretty time-consuming work. And the thought of putting something like that on the floor for my husband to come in and wipe his boots on just makes me ill. I cannot imagine that anyone would do that. Instead, I side with the bloggers' websites and actual books that I found that explain that this was a decorative thing that women did with the last scrap of the scraps. And anything that was left over from this wound up going in as stuffing for dolls for your children or pincushion stuffing. 
But especially if you don't have a whole lot, when you do have pretty fabric lying around, what a lovely opportunity to make something beautiful for your home. I think largely what we have left to us as actual antique textiles all date from after the Civil War. So there are a lot of people who say that this started during the Civil War. I don't think so. If you know anything about this, please, please, please call our phone number. That is area code 206-350-1642 and record a message so that I can share your factual information with everyone next week. And so these penny rugs became little mats to put on tables or like a runner or uh, something to put on the mantelpiece, that kind of thing. And they were made out of a backing fabric, usually but not always, and then concentric circles placed on top of each other, usually three. So you have a bottom circle that's larger, like say a two inch circle, and then a one and a half inch circle, different color on top of that. And then a one inch circle, different color still on top of that. And these circles would then be joined to each other at the edges of the two inch circle, the bottom circle. And usually, not always, but usually the basket stitch was stitched around the individual pieces as a decoration, usually in a contrasting yarn or a contrasting thread. There are so many examples of modern penny rugs out there, especially on Pinterest, duh, that I'm not even going to put any on the show notes. However, you will find a ton of links on the show notes to examples of penny rugs, tutorials for penny rugs, and the couple of pages that I found that actually show antique penny rugs, one of which dates back to the turn of the last century. Often the coloring on these older penny rugs were those kind of muted, dusky, dusty colors. So kind of a dusky taupe or a dusty rose or a dusty blue, an antique blue. And they're lovely and truly not anything you would have expected to see out of, say, 1865 America, I think. They look in some ways shockingly modern to me because journal, art journal people are using a lot of circles right now, or they were a couple of years ago. Anyway, I was thinking about you and I was thinking about quilting and English paper piecing and that, you know, until you actually try English paper piecing, there isn't a whole lot more for me to tell you about it except, woo, it's fun, and I'm really cooking along on repairing that big hexagon quilt, so I'm happy about that. And then I remembered decades ago going to Sturbridge Village with my aunt, who is good at everything artistic, and she was making a penny quilt, and it took me a while to remember what it was called. And then, like I said, I went down a rabbit hole. So lots of help if you are interested in making one yourself. There are a couple of tutorials on how to use paper punches, like scrapbooking paper punches, to cut out multiple circles from felted wool. There are lots of instructions on how to felt or full wool sweaters or wool coats, jackets, pants from men's suits. So you can find stuff in thrift stores and reduce, reuse, recycle. 
and upscale a bunch of stuff that way. But I do hope you go take a look and I hope you enjoy seeing maybe newish kind of craft. And like I said, I do think that this actually was being done in other countries, just in different ways and variations. And uh, and the things that I am linking to are things that have been specifically identified as American penny rugs from the 1860s on. Oh, and I almost forgot two very important things. One is this week is the last week. This weekend is the last weekend to enter the raffle for Hunter Hammerson's Curls book. This is the versatile, wearable wraps to knit at any gauge. And and it is the book that has made me want to knit again. The link to our raffle page is at craftlit.com. You can find it under any of the January 2015 episodes, including today's episode 373. And the last thing before we talk about our book is John Scholes. Those of you who have a premium membership, you get to hear his fabulous voice every week while we read through the picture of Dorian Gray. But for the rest of you who aren't premium members, and why not? It's only $5 a month for four extra episodes of fabulous audiobooks with benefits. John Scholes also has his own podcast, which has moved up in the rankings quite quickly. And to give you a taste of what it sounds like and to give you a heads up that if you are going on the Craftlit trip in October 2015, there is every chance in the world that you might actually get to meet John Scholes live and in person. Hello, Craftlit listeners. I am John Scholes, and you might have heard my voice before. Question for you. What do you do when you're looking for a podcast specially designed for you and for your interests, and there's nothing out there that's just quite right? Well, if you're like Heather, then you start your own podcast, and that's exactly what I've done myself. If you like quiz shows, and are even vaguely classifiable as a geek, then you should come on over and listen to The Missing Monkey, the biggest, the best, and probably the only geek quiz game show on the world of cat memes and insanity that is the internet. We ask an ever-changing panel all sorts of questions about comics, films, books, TV and games, and most of all, we have fun doing it. And I'm inviting you to come on over and join us too. If you like it, tell people. If you don't like it, pretend you do and still tell people. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Find us on iTunes, on your phone's podcast player, or come right to the website at themissingmonkey.com. And as ever, it's all free. Thank you so much for listening. And now, back to Heather. Goodbye. <laughs> Go have a listen. His show never fails to remind me of the scene in Good Omens where the four horsemen of the apocalypse or the four bikers of the apocalypse all show up in a pub. Herland. So before we get heavy into the book, there is one thing that I wanted to bring to your attention. And it, for me, it does connect with the larger subject that's being dealt with in Herland. And it is this. If you were listening to the podcast feed, you heard uh, very shortly ago an episode that was put out by the Christian Humanist podcast host, Nathan Gilmore. 
and me, where we both got to interview Brian Dorries, who is the progenitor of the Theater of War project, which is amazing. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that audio, please, please do. All at the same time that I was working on editing that audio, I got an email from one of my What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit designers. And I mentioned her situation on the Christian Humanist Podcast Connected episode as well. But I wanted to talk about it a little bit differently here because one of the things that becomes clear to me while rereading Herland is how surprised the men are by the sense of community that these women hold and how pervasive that community is. That it's not just lip service. It's not just, oh, we really care about each other. It is interwoven lives. And in talking to Brian and reading Herland all at the same time and and thinking about this theater of war stuff that he's doing and how very, very necessary it is for, for the health of our military, but also for the health of the rest of us who are distanced in so many ways from the reality of, of war and, and of what our soldiers are going through and their families are going through. I thought this was probably a good time to bring this up. If you're on the Facebook group for Craftlet, You may have seen postings from one of our Defarge designers, Annalena Mattinson, who is in Northern California. Her husband, who is in military reserve right now and was in the army for a very long time, he served in Iraq and directly related to that time of his service. He, about a year and a half ago, found out that he had kidney cancer. Now, his story isn't that unique, and that's really the horrifying part. But because people who aren't in the military don't always hear the stories about actual real people in the military, I thought it was kind of a good idea to talk to Annalena on the microphone and let her tell you a little bit about what's been going on and why her family, her four children who are still at home, that's triplets and a slightly older child, all four of whom are in middle school, that they could they could use a little help and a little support. And if you can't help or support them right now yourself, if you could at least spread the word, it would be a great help. So this is part of our conversation. How did this all how did it all start? And when did it hit stupid? Yes. <laughs> Because it's been stupid for a while. We're pretty sure he was exposed to depleted uranium. There are maps out there proving where it is and stuff like that over there. There's a lot, a lot of sick soldiers from that. And it causes all sorts of crazy cancers. Right. I mean, you name it. Cancers you've never heard of. Right. Like tonsil cancer. What? And all sorts of, you know, genital and female stomach, a lot of stomach stuff, a lot of lung stuff because you ingest it. Right. It's coming in. So it processes, you know, through the kidneys and all that. So he, based on the tumor on his kidney and based on average growth rates Mm -hmm. on kidney cancer, he got it. While he was in the southern part of Iraq, northern part of Kuwait, he was in charge of a battalion there. 
So they were kind of over, back and forth over the border. Right. Where did the uranium come from? It's it's used in weapons and tanks and stuff like that. Uh, um, and then when uh, they used ammunition and the tanks and the trucks and everything, in Kuwait, it's like 98% desert. Right. So they just take all this and they just haul it into the desert. They throw it in big piles and then they take a little, like make a berm of sand around it and right. they just leave it there. Well, you know, sandstorms. Yeah, that's going to be kicking that up and moving it around. And they've got piles like that from the first Iraqi war. From Desert Storm. Yes. Oh. Yes. My goodness. Yeah, so that stuff's been rotting in the desert in the sun for a while, getting kicked up and moved around. So the real problem right now isn't, it isn't health insurance. It's the owning the responsibility for causing cancer. And is this all connected to what was going on with the VA or what is not was what is going on with the VA? And, and well, the VA and the army are essentially two separate things. It's two separate claims. The one against the army isn't really a claim. It's just a matter of getting a determination to get a medical retirement rather than a regular retirement. Right. And his mandatory retirement date was August 1st of last year, which was his birthday. He filed, you know, six weeks before, totally standard. It should just be, you know, the papers go up the food chain and they sign it and they have a little ceremony and say, you know, good luck. But it's been sitting there since August. Well, since before August. Is it sitting there because they know that there's this medical thing looming? We're not sure. It just keeps getting stuck on people's desks. They won't sign off on it because it's the medical part that's involved. And nobody wants to take responsibility for signing it. Because a medical retirement is more expensive than a... Yeah. I mean, ordinarily, he would start getting a retirement pay. If you're in the, if you're in the reserves, you start getting retirement pay at 60. Right. And then you can get medical for life at 60. But we're asking for him to get it now... You know, that's part of the medical. So seriously, we're talking about a difference of six years. Five, five. Yeah, he'll be, you know, he'll be 55 in August. And no one will take responsibility. Yeah. So if the army would take responsibility for the cancer, would that de facto give you access to this medication? More than likely. Is it is it an experiment? Is it one of the experimental ones? Melanoma and kidney cancer uh, respond to the same medications for some reason. And this Keytruda is the name of the medication. It has already, it was approved in September for melanoma. And so it's sitting at the FDA now waiting for approval for kidney cancer. So the clinical trials have been completed. Right. They're showing a 40% remission rate, which is astonishing because there really isn't anything else for kidney cancer that is a cure. Right. Unfortunately, there, you know, kidney cancer doesn't respond to um, traditional chemo or radiation. So this is, it's like big news in the kidney cancer community, basically. It's like, wow, here's something that gives a real chance. Yeah. But because it hasn't been approved yet, the doctors can prescribe it off label which our oncologist is more than willing to do. However, um, the insurance can't pay for off-label drugs. And the manufacturers have a help program, but they can only help people with melanoma. Right, because it's not approved for... Right. And the um, 
The drug is an infusion every three weeks, and each bag, it's almost $20,000. I think we've, we've all heard stories in the news and in the papers and on the internet, but it's a little bit different when it's your people. And the craftlet community has always been so strong and so marvelous. And I know it's post-Christmas and everybody is tapped out, but if you have anything that you can donate for Curtis and his family, please follow the link in the show notes to the GoFundMe site. So that's my, my Herland connected to the reality of life right now soapbox, and, uh, and I hope you go take a look. Well, our chapter today is something that you have probably anticipated, but weren't sure when it was going to show up. And that is the guys finally having access to the young women and, and getting a chance to watch and see how that goes down. There is one phrase that I was completely thrown by, and I understand now why I was thrown by it, but it's kind of cool. Van, at one point, will compare Jeff to a Huguenot lover. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I went and I looked it up, and I think what he's talking about is a painting from John Everett Millay in 1852. And the full title of this painting is A Huguenot on St. Bartholomew's Day, Refusing to Shield Himself from Danger by wearing the Roman Catholic badge. And that does not sound like a particularly romantic painting, but it is because it's two lovers staring into each other's eyes. And the thing that I find so shocking about Millet's art, if you're listening to Dorian Gray, you've heard a little bit about this, is that he hung out with pre-Raphaelites. And, and, and that puts him, you know, dead in the middle of the 1800s. But when you look at his art, it looks way later than that to me. It looks way later than that to me. So I'm, I put the picture on the show notes. Take a look and see what you think. I'm just fascinated by Millet. In fact, if you read Grounded and you remember the Joan of Arc painting that is referenced in the book, the style of the Joan of Arc painting reminds me of this particular Millet painting. And you may recall John Everett Millet married Effie Nee Ruskin, who was the, the woman who was married to John Ruskin, a marriage that may or may not have been consummated for reasons that may or may not have had anything to do with how women's bodies are constructed. Who knows? No one was in the room with them, so who knows? But John Millay is who Effie eventually married happily. They had many children and they had long life together. So yay, yay for everyone. But that's, that's where the Huguenot lover comes from. And you'll see, if Jeff actually was dressed like the guy in the painting, it would have been a little funny. So that's all that is. The other thing that this chapter reminded me of was when Harry met Sally. If you remember that movie, you'll remember that one of the big questions that was attempted to be dealt with in the movie was, can men and women be friends? without starting a, a love relationship, a, a physical relationship. And you're going to hear that same question raised by Gilman 
in this chapter, which I thought was real interesting. And for those of you who are listening to this podcast in real time, you may find a couple of things kind of interesting. One is how Gilman describes patriotism, which it's it's an interesting concept, right? Is how can you be patriotic in a country that is only itself, you know, that has no trade with or communication with outside countries? It changes the whole paradigm. So that's one thing to listen for. And the other thing to listen for is the no childhood illness thing. So listen for that. I think that this is a chapter that Terry haters are going to love. <laughs> it's it's going to be fun. And I think there was one other word. Oh, lodestar. It's a word that we don't use very often. And lodestar could mean Polaris. It could be any star that you use in navigating by the stars. Or metaphorically, it could be your guiding principle. It could be the thing that you kind of latch onto and that you follow as a as a way of thinking about life in the world. And that's all that is. So let's get to the happy Terry Hater <laughs> chapter, chapter eight of Herland, read for you by Charles Hutchinson. Chapter 8. The Girls of Herland At last Terry's ambition was realized. We were invited, always courteously and with free choice on our part, to address general audiences and classes of girls. I remember the first time and how careful we were about our clothes and our amateur barbering. Terry in particular was fussy to a degree about the cut of his beard and so critical of our combined efforts that we handed him the shears and told him to please himself. We began to rather prize those beards of ours. They were almost our sole distinction among those tall and sturdy women with their cropped hair and sexless costume. Being offered a wide selection of garments, we had chosen according to our personal taste and were surprised to find on meeting large audiences that we were the most highly decorated, especially Terry. He was a very impressive figure. His strong features softened by the somewhat longer hair, though he made me trim it closely as I knew how, and he wore his richly embroidered tunic with its broad, loose girdle with quite a Henry V air. Jeff looked more like, well, like a Huguenot lover. And I still don't know what I look like, only that I felt very comfortable. When I got back to our own padded armor and its starched borders, I realized with acute regret how comfortable were those Herland clothes. We scanned that audience, looking for the three bright faces we knew. But they were not to be seen. Just a multitude of girls, quiet, eager, watchful, all eyes and ears to listen and learn. We had been urged to give, as fully as we cared to, a sort of synopsis of world history, in brief, and to answer questions. We are so utterly ignorant, you see, Modine had explained to us. We know nothing but such sciences we have worked out for ourselves, just the brainwork of one small half-country. And you, we gather, have helped one another all over the globe, sharing your discoveries, pooling your progress. How wonderful, how supremely beautiful your civilization must be. 
So Mel gave a further suggestion. You do not have to begin all over again as you did with us. We have made a sort of digest of what we learned from you, and it has been eagerly absorbed all over the country. Perhaps you would like to see our outline? We were eager to see it and deeply impressed. To us, at first, these women, unavoidably ignorant of what to us was the basic commonplace knowledge, had seemed on the plane of children or of savages. What we had been forced to admit with growing acquaintance was that they were ignorant as Plato and Aristotle were, but with a highly developed mentality quite comparable to that of ancient Greece. Far be it from me to lumber these pages with an account of what we so imperfectly strove to teach them. The memorable fact is what they taught us, or some faint glimpse of it, and at present our major interest was not at all in the subject matter of our talk, but in the audience. Girls, hundreds of them, eager, bright-eyed, attentive young faces, crowding questions, and I regret to say an increasing inability on our part to answer them effectively. Our special guides who were on the platform with us and sometimes aided in clarifying a question or oftener an answer noticed this effect and closed the formal lecture part of the evening rather shortly. Our young women will be glad to meet you, Somel suggested, to talk with you more personally, if you are willing. Willing, we were impatient and said as much, at which I saw a flickering little smile cross Moadine's face. Even then, with all those eager young things waiting to talk to us, a sudden question crossed my mind. What was their point of view? What did they think of us? We learned that later. Terry plunged in among those young creatures with a sort of rapture, somewhat as a glad swimmer takes to the sea. Jeff, with a rapt look on his high-bred face, approached as to a sacrament. But I was a little chilled by that last thought of mine and kept my eyes open. I found time to watch Jeff even while I was surrounded by an eager group of questioners, as we all were and saw how his worshipping eyes, his grave courtesy, pleased and drew some of them, and while others, rather stronger spirits they looked to be, drew away from his group to Terry's or mine. I watched Terry with special interest, knowing how he had longed for this time, and how irresistible he had always been at home. And I could see, just in snatches, of course, how his suave and masterful approach seemed to irritate them. His two intimate glances were vaguely resented. His compliments puzzled and annoyed. Sometimes a girl would flush, not with dropped eyelids and inviting timidity, but with anger and a quick lift of the head. Girl after girl turned on her heel and left him, till he had but a small ring of questioners, and they, visibly, were the least girlish of the lot. I saw him looking pleased at first, as if he thought he was making a strong impression, but finally casting a look at Jeff or me, he seemed less pleased and less. As for me, I was most agreeably surprised. At home I never was popular. I had my girlfriends, good ones, but they were friends, nothing else. Also, they were of somewhat the same clan, 
not popular in the sense of swarming admirers. But here, to my astonishment, I found my crowd was the largest. I have to generalize, of course, rather than telescoping many impressions. But the first evening was a good sample of the impression we made. Jeff had a following, if I may call it that, of the more sentimental, though that's not the word I want, the less practical, perhaps, the girls who were artists of some sort, ethicists, teachers, that kind. Terry was reduced to a rather combative group, keen, logical, inquiring minds, not overly sensitive, the very kind he liked least. While, as for me, I, I became quite cocky over my general popularity. Terry was furious about it. We could hardly blame him. Girls, he burst forth when that evening was over and we were by ourselves once more. Call those girls! Most delightful girls, I call them, said Jeff, his blue eyes dreamily contented. What do you call them? I mildly inquired. Boys! Nothing but boys, most of them. A standoffish, disagreeable lot at that. Critical, impertinent youngsters, not girls at all. He was angry and severe, not a little jealous, too, I think. Afterward, when we found out just what it was they did not like, he changed his manner somewhat and got on better. He had to. For in spite of his criticisms, they were girls, and furthermore, all the girls there were, always excepting our three, with whom we presently renewed our acquaintance. When it came to courtship, which it soon did, I can of course best describe my own, and am least inclined to. But of Jeff I heard somewhat. He was inclined to dwell reverently and admiringly, at some length, on the exalted sentiment and the measureless perfection of his cellus. And Terry, Terry made so many false starts and met so many rebuffs that by the time he really settled down to win Alima, he was considerably wiser. At that, it was not smooth sailing. They broke and quarreled over and over. He would rush off to console himself with some other fair one. The other fair one would have none of him and he would drift back to Alima, becoming more and more devoted each time. She never gave an inch, a big, handsome creature, rather exceptionally strong even in that race of strong women, with a proud head and sweeping level brows that lined across above her dark, eager eyes, like the wide wings of a soaring hawk. I was good friends with all three of them, but best of all with Elidor, long before that feeling changed for both of us. From her and from Somel, who talked very freely with me, I learned at last something of the viewpoint of her land towards its visitors. Here they were, isolated, happy, contented, when the booming buzz of our biplane tore the air above them. Everybody heard it, saw it. For miles and miles, word flashed all over the country, and a council was held in every town and village. And this was their rapid determination. From another country, probably men, evidently highly civilized, doubtless possessed of much valuable knowledge, maybe dangerous, catch them if possible, tame and train them if necessary. This may be a chance to reestablish a bisexual state for our people. They were not afraid of us. Three million highly intelligent women, 
or two million, counting only grown-ups, were not likely to be afraid of three young men. We thought of them as women, and therefore timid. But it was 2,000 years since they had had anything to be afraid of, and certainly more than 1,000 since they had outgrown the feeling. We thought, at least Terry did, that we could have our pick of them. They thought, very cautiously and farsightedly, of picking us if it seemed wise. All that time we were in training, they studied us, analyzed us, prepared reports about us, and this information was widely disseminated all about the land. Not a girl in that country had not been learning for months as much as could be gathered about our country, our culture, our personal characters. No wonder their questions were hard to answer. But I am sorry to say, when we were at last brought out and exhibited, I hate to call it that, but that's what it was, there was no rush of takers. Here was poor old Terry, fondly imagining that at last he was free to stray in a rosebud garden of girls. And behold, the rosebuds were all with keen, appraising eye studying us. They were interested, profoundly interested, but it was not the kind of interest we were looking for. To get an idea of their attitude, you have to hold in mind their extremely high sense of solidarity. They were not each choosing a lover. They hadn't the faintest idea of love, sex love, that is. These girls, to each of whom motherhood was a lodestar, and that motherhood exalted above a mere personal function, look forward to as the highest social service, as the sacrament of a lifetime, were now confronted with an opportunity to make the great step of changing their whole status, of reverting to their earlier bisexual order of nature. Besides this underlying consideration, there was the limitless interest and curiosity in our civilization, purely impersonal, and held by an order of mind beside which we were like schoolboys. It was small wonder that our lectures were not a success, and not at all that our, or at least Terry's, advances were so ill-received. The reason for my own comparative success was at first far from pleasing to my pride. We like you the best, Samel said, because you seem more like us. More like a lot of women, I thought to myself disgustedly, and then remembered how little like women in our derogatory sense they were. She was smiling at me, reading my thoughts. We can quite see we do not seem like women to you. Of course, in a bisexual race, the distinctive feature of each sex must be intensified. But surely there are characteristics enough which belong to people, aren't there? That's what I mean about you being more like us, more like people. We feel at ease with you. Jeff's difficulty was his exalted gallantry. He idealized women and was always looking for a chance to protect or to serve them. These needed neither protection nor service. They were living in peace and power and plenty. We were their guests, their prisoners, absolutely dependent.
Of course, we could promise whatsoever we might of advantages, if they would come to our country. But the more we knew of theirs, the less we boasted. Terry's jewels and trinkets they prized as curios, handed them about, asking question as to the workmanship, not to the least as to value, and discussed not ownership, but which museum to put them in. When a man has nothing to give a woman, is dependent wholly on his personal attraction, his courtship is under limitations. They were considering these two things, the advisability of making the great change and the degree of personal adaptability which would best serve that end. Here we had the advantage of our small personal experience with those three Fleet Forest girls, and that served to draw us together. As for Elidor, suppose you come to a strange land and find it pleasant enough, just a little more than ordinarily pleasant, and then you find rich farmland, and then gardens, gorgeous gardens, and then palaces full of rare and curious treasures, incalculable, inexhaustible, and then mountains, like the Himalayas, and then the sea. I liked her that day she balanced on the branch before me and named the trio. I thought of her most. Afterward, I turned to her like a friend when we met for the third time and continued the acquaintance. While Jeff's ultra-devotion rather puzzled Alice, really put off their day of happiness, while Terry and Alima quarreled and parted, remet and reparted, Elidor and I grew to be close friends. We talked and talked. We took long walks together. She showed me things, explained them, interpreted much that I had not understood. Through her sympathetic intelligence, I became more and more comprehending of the spirit of the people of her land, more and more appreciative of its marvelous inner growth as well as outer perfection. I ceased to feel a stranger, a prisoner. There was a sense of understanding, of identity, of purpose. We discussed everything. And as I traveled farther and farther, exploring the rich, sweet soul of her, my sense of pleasant friendship became but a broad foundation for such height, such breadth, such interlocked combination of feeling as left me fairly blinded with the wonder of it. As I've said, I had never cared very much for women, nor they for me. Not Terry fashion, but this one... At first, I never thought of her in that way, as the girls have it. I had not come to the country with any Turkish harem intentions, and I was no woman worshipper like Jeff. I just liked that girl as a friend, as they say. That friendship grew like a tree. She was such a good sport. We did all kinds of things together. She taught me games, and I taught her games, and we raced and rode and had all manner of fun as well as higher comradeship. Then, as I got on further, the palace and treasures and snowy mountain ranges opened up. I had never known there could be such a human being. So, great. I don't mean talented. She was a forester, one of the best. But it was not that gift, I mean. When I say great, I mean great. Big. All through. If I had known more of those women as intimately, I should not have found her so unique. But 
Even among them, she was noble. Her mother was an overmother, and her grandmother too, I heard later. So she told me more and more of her beautiful land, and I told her as much, yes, more than I wanted to about mine. And we became inseparable. Then this deeper recognition came and grew. I felt my own soul rise and lift its wings, as it were. Life got bigger. It seemed as if I understood, as I never had before, as if I could do things, as if I, too, could grow, if she would help me. And then it came to both of us all at once. A still day on the edge of the world, their world, the two of us gazing out over the far, dim forest land before, talking of heaven and earth and human life, and of my land and other lands and what they needed and what I hoped to do for them, if you will help me, I said. She turned to me with that high, sweet look of hers, and then, as her eyes rested in mine and her hands too, then suddenly there blazed out between us a farther glory, instant, overwhelming, quite beyond any words of mine to tell. Salus was a pale and gold and rose person, Alima black and white and red, a blazing beauty. Elador was brown, hair dark and soft, like a seal coat, clear brown skin and a healthy red in it, brown eyes, all the way from topaz to black velvet they seemed to range. Splendid girls, all of them. They had seen us, first of all, far down in the lake below, and flashed the tidings across the land even before our first exploring flight. They had watched our landing, flitted through the forest with us, hidden in that tree, and, I shrewdly suspect, giggled on purpose. They had kept watch over our hooded machine, taking turns at it, and when our escape was announced, had followed alongside for a day or two, and been there at the last, as described. They felt a special claim on us, called us their men, and when we were at liberty to study the land and the people, and be studied by them, their claim was recognized by the wise leaders. But I felt, we all did, that we should have chosen them among millions unerringly. And yet, the path of true love never did run smooth. This period of courtship was full of the most unsuspected pitfalls. Writing this as late as I do, after manifold experiences both in her land and later in my own land, I can now understand and philosophize about what was then a continual astonishment and often a temporary tragedy. The long suit in most courtships is sex attraction, of course, then gradually develops such comradeship as two temperaments allow. Then, after marriage, there is either the establishment of a slow-growing, widely-based friendship, the deepest, tenderest, and sweetest of relations, all lit and warmed by the recurrent flame of love, or else that process is reversed. Love cools and fades. No friendship grows. The whole relation turns from beauty to ashes. Here, everything was different. There was no sex feeling to appeal to, or practically none. Two thousand years disuse had left very little of the instinct. 
Also, we must remember that those who had at times manifested it as atavistic exceptions were often, by that very fact, denied motherhood. Yet, while the mother process remains, the inherent ground for sex distinction remains also. And who shall say what long-forgotten feeling, vague and nameless, was stirred in some of these mother hearts by our arrival? What left us even more at sea in our approach was the lack of any sex tradition. There was no accepted standard of what was manly and what was womanly. When Jeff said, taking the fruit basket from his adored one, a woman should not carry anything, Sellis said, why? With the frankest amazement. He could not look that fleet-footed, deep-chested young forester in the face and say, because she is weaker. She wasn't. One does not call a racehorse weak because it is visibly not a cart horse. He said rather lamely that women were not built for heavy work. She looked out across the fields to where some women were working, building a new bit of wall out of large stones, looked back at the nearest town with its woman-built houses, down at the smooth, hard road we were walking on, and then at the little basket he had taken from her. I don't understand, she said quite sweetly. Are the women in your country so weak that they could not carry such a thing as that? It's a convention, he said. We assume that motherhood is a sufficient burden, that men should carry all the others. What a beautiful feeling, she said, her blue eyes shining. Does it uh, work? asked Lima in her keen, swift way. Do all men in all countries carry everything, or is it only in yours? Don't be so literal, Terry begged lazily. Why aren't you willing to be worshipped and waited on? We like to do it. You don't like to have us do it to you, she answered. That's different, he said, annoyed. And when she said, why is it? He quite sulked, referring her to me, saying, Van's the philosopher. Elidor and I talked it all out together so that we had an easier experience of it when the real miracle time came. Also, between us, we made things clear to Jeff and Celis, but Terry would not listen to reason. He was madly in love with Alima. He wanted to take her by storm and nearly lost her forever. You see, if a man loves a girl who is in the first place, young and inexperienced, who, in the second place, is educated with a background of caveman tradition, a middle ground of poetry and romance, and a foreground of unspoken hope and interest all centering upon the one event, and who has, furthermore, absolutely no other hope or interest worthy of the name, why, it is a comparatively easy matter to sweep her off her feet with a dashing attack. Terry was a past master in this process. He tried it here, and Alima was so affronted, so repelled, that it was weeks before he got near enough to try again. The more coldly she denied him, the hotter his determination. He was not used to real refusal. The approach of flattery she dismissed with laughter. Gifts and such attentions we could not bring to bear. Pathos and complaint of cruelty stirred only a reasoning inquiry. It took Terry a long time.
I doubt if she ever accepted her strange lover as fully as did Celis and Elidor theirs. He had hurt and offended her too often. There were reservations. But I think that Alima retained some faint vestige of long-descended feeling which made Terry more possible to her than to others, and that she had made up her mind to the experiment and hated to renounce it. However it came about, we all three at length achieved full understanding and solemnly faced what was to them a step of measureless importance, a grave question as well as a great happiness, to us a strange new joy. Of marriage as a ceremony they knew nothing. Jeff was for bringing them to our country for the religious and civil ceremony, but neither Celis nor the others would consent. We can't expect them to want to go with us yet, said Terry sagely. Wait a bit, boys. We've got to take them on their own terms, if at all. This in rueful reminiscence of his repeated failures. But our time's coming, he added cheerfully. These women have never been mastered, you see. This as one who had made a discovery. You'd better not try to do any mastering if you value your chances, I told him seriously. But he only laughed and said, Every man to his trade. We couldn't do anything with him. He had to take his own medicine. If the lack of a tradition of courtship left us much at sea in our wooing, we found ourselves still more bewildered by lack of tradition of matrimony. And here again, I have to draw on later experience and as deep an acquaintance with their culture as I could achieve to fully explain the gulfs of difference between us. Two thousand years of one continuous culture with no men. Back of that, only traditions of harem. They had no exact analog for our word home, any more than they had for our Roman-based family. They loved one another with a practically universal affection, rising to exquisite and unbroken friendships, and broadening to a devotion to their country and people for which our word patriotism is no definition at all. Patriotism, red hot, is compatible with the existence of a neglect of national interests, a dishonesty, a cold indifference to the suffering of millions. Patriotism is largely pride and very largely combativeness. Patriotism generally has a chip on its shoulder. This country had no other country to measure itself by, save the few poor savages far below with whom they had no contact. They loved their country because it was their nursery, playground, and workshop, theirs and their children's. They were proud of it as a workshop, proud of their record of ever-increasing efficiency. They had made a pleasant garden of it, a very practical little heaven. But most of all, they valued it. And here it is hard for us to understand them as a cultural environment for their children. That, of course, is the keynote of the whole distinction, their children. From those first breathlessly guarded, half-adored race mothers, all up the ascending line, they had this dominant thought of building up a great race through the children. All the surrendering devotion our women have put into their private families, these women put into their country and race. All the loyalty and service men expect of their wives, they gave, not singly to men, 
but collectively to one another. And the mother instinct with us so painfully intense, so thwarted by conditions, so concentrated in personal devotion to a few, so bitterly hurt by death, disease, or barrenness, and even by the mere growth of the children, leaving the mother alone in her empty nest. All this feeling with them flowed out in a strong, wide current, unbroken through the generations, deepening and widening through the years, including every child in all the land. With their united power and wisdom, they had studied and overcome the diseases of childhood. Their children had none. They had faced the problems of education and so solved them that their children grew up as naturally as young trees, learning through every sense, taught continuously but unconsciously, never knowing they were being educated. In fact, they did not use the word as we do. Their idea of education was the special training they took when half grown up under experts. Then the eager young minds fairly flung themselves on their chosen subjects and acquired with an ease, a breadth, a grasp, of which I never cease to wonder. But the babies and little children never felt the pressure of that forcible feeding of the mind that we call education. Of this, more later. Well, I don't know about you, but I found that description of empty nest syndrome to be rather surprising. It seemed like such a thing that just started getting talked about in the last 20 or 30 years that to hear it come out of the mouth of a writer in 1915, I just went, it hadn't occurred to me. But yes, if your life as a woman had been relegated to being in and only being in the home and, you know, caring for the children when you're in the home, then when the children aren't there and it's just you in the home, that would be kind of hard. Hadn't really, I don't know why that struck me so oddly, but it did. And Terry haters, did you have fun? Was that fun to watch Terry completely fail? I loved I loved the descriptions of him just not just not being at all successful with any of the women. That was just great. Ugh, Terry. And I, I particularly loved the fact that in the beginning, when the women, the young women, were turning around and leaving from the Q&A session where they, they came up afterwards to talk to Terry— that at first he thought that it was because he was you know, so madly and masterful. And then he started to realize that Jeff and Van were getting much bigger crowds and Derry wasn't doing so well. But the descriptions of Terry also start to touch on something that the book gets criticized for. And I, I brought it up last week. And I think it's it's worth bringing up again, not because I necessarily agree with it or disagree with it, but because it's it's probably something to keep in mind, which is that Gilman had to use tropes that were familiar to her readers. And if she wanted anyone to pay attention and actually think about what she was talking about at all, she was going to have to make the men from our world behave the way men from our world might well have behaved. Again, as an archetype, as, as the three different types of men. 
that she had kind of boiled down to their essential pieces, Van being the, the middle of the road, or I guess ego-id and superego, in fact. But that in, in order to make her case, one of the things that she had to deal with would be Terry. And the, the fact that were he to, or someone like him, to show up in her land, uh, chances are he would wind up assaulting someone or, or trying to and, and maybe get the bachujus kicked out of him. I'm not sure. But that by, by doing that and going there, Gilman is using a, a fairly masculine structure to the book because now all of a sudden, finally, we're dealing with a love story or, or at least part of a love story. Van seems to be happy and in love. And Jeff, eh, it's hard to know. I loved that section of, well, you know, a woman shouldn't have to carry anything. <laughs> what, do you think a woman's not capable? And you look at the houses and you look at the walls and you go, oh. And I love that Terry's response is, don't be so literal. <laughs> Learn a metaphor, woman. Oh, I, I just love how Terry and, and Jeff, too, come off in today's chapter. And in, in another kind of odd parallel, this has just been on my mind while I've been recording. It took me a while to remember where this was coming from. I, I had this other kind of her land going on in the back of my mind. I couldn't figure out what it was. And it's that I've been catching up on episodes, actually not catching up, starting the series and just watching through the series while I cook dinner or do other stuff of Call the Midwife which friends of mine had said, oh, you'd love it. And I just, I just hadn't gotten around to it. And I do. I love it. It's wonderful. And it also has remarkably few men in it. Not, not surprisingly, right? I mean, it's all about midwives and childbirth and women and doing that baby thing. It shouldn't be a surprise that it's mostly women, but somehow it is. I don't know if you saw Gina Davis's goofy a public service announcement. I will put a link to it in the show notes. And that's kind of a, a goofy way to talk about this, but the, well, no, there was a study that my husband told me about where they counted how often two women were in a scene together. And then of the times that two women were in a scene together without, without any men in the, in the scene, how often were they having a conversation about something other than men? And the result of that tallying was appalling. The number of times that women are together in a scene without any men is like very, very few. And then if you take that small number and distill it down to, and talking about something other than going on a date or what their husband is up to, it's, and, and here I am saying this after telling you, and my husband told me about this. It's very, very small. So if you haven't seen it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. And it takes place in 1958. So it's post-war, but it's an interesting time that I don't, I don't know about shows in the UK that don't come across the pond, but for us here in the United States, it's not a particularly common period of time for shows that I've, I've watched. It's a, it's a pleasure, actually, to get to see a, a piece of history that I've just never seen before. And also to hear how much medicine has changed and how much it hasn't. 
So that's that's kind of fun. And of course, medicine right now and vaccinations are in the news. Uh, I'm recording this just after the Disneyland measles outbreak. I leave you with a question, and the question is this. Is there any other scientific study or experiment that has had such a long record of being done where the results are tallied and the research is ongoing as human reactions to vaccines? I cannot think of any study, like double-blind study or any other study, where you've had so long a period of time to watch the effects of something on humans, in this case, vaccines. So if you can think of a, a study, longitudinal study, that's gone on for longer than our experience with vaccines in, uh, in, the, in the Western world, anyway, uh, please do let me know. I'm, I'm very curious. The number is 206-350-1642. Because I think the, the way that Herland dealt with illness and disease eugenically is different from how we've tried to deal with illness and disease. But it wasn't always how we tried to deal with illness and disease. And in fact, I'm going to link to a Larry Wilmore episode. If you haven't seen Larry Wilmore, he's the guy who has taken over the time slot for Stephen Colbert. And he has an African-American comedian on his panel who, when asked about vaccines and vaccination, was very clear that he wanted no part of it because the Tuskegee study was still high on his list of things to be scared of. He said, anytime the government tries to put a needle in my arm, I'm going to be a little concerned. And if you aren't familiar with the Tuskegee experiments, I'll link to that as well, because you should be. It's appalling. But somewhere in here, somewhere between eugenics and vaccinations, there has to be sanity and common ground. As well as, and this was the thing that when a friend of mine said, did you hear about Disneyland? I was horrified because uh, friends of mine, their daughter had, at the ripe old age of nine, she had contracted a, a very rare, weird cancer and had to go through all these therapies. And it was horrible and horrifying you know, for a nine-year-old. And then when she was recovering, and she is, thank God, she is fine now, but immunocompromised because of all the chemo that she had to take. But as she was recovering, she was part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation and she got to go to Disneyland and she went on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride with Johnny Depp because either the second or the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie was opening and it was a thing. And the Make-A-Wish Foundation is always taking kids who have survived cancer or transplants or other illnesses that, that you, you know, when a kid has gone through that, you really do want to give them an attaboy or an girl and, and give them a treat. But it's not going to be much of a treat if they wind up going to a public place where it's now known that people are going regularly who are potentially carriers. It's not the kids who don't vaccinate that are going to pay. It's the kids of the other people 
who would have been vaccinated if they could have been, or would be healthy and strong if they hadn't been immunocompromised by chemo or transplant drugs. And that's that overdeveloped sense of injustice thing kicking in for me. I am breaking in quite literally at the 11th hour because I got a voicemail from last week's episode that I thought I should play for you today. It kind of all goes together with everything else that I've talked about today. So important voicemail. Here it is. Hi, Heather. This is Brenda. Um, my name on, Cra- or on Ravelry is Priscilla Bjorn. And I listened to your latest, at least the latest episode of Craftlet that I have. And her land has been kind of interesting up till this point. But today, wow, <laughs> what an interesting episode. And you're just a call, so I'm calling. Okay, uh, a couple areas that I wanted to comment on. First of all, I was really impressed by the women's pride and interest in agriculture and how they did so well at it. And it made me think of when I was a kid, I, um, I live in Kansas. And um, as a kid, I used to go to Grange meetings with my dad. And Grange is sort of a farmer's organization, which I think it's still around, but it's kind of turned into like the Kiwanis or something, I guess. But as a kid, my dad was like the youngest member in this branch. And they had a lot of history, a lot of history. And most of the people in it were really old. And like my grandpa was born in 1902. And so this 1915 era was not that far away. <laughs> and they, um, they evoked times from back then. And one of the offices in this, this organization was always held by a woman. And in ceremonial uh, meetings, she would hold a sickle, and her title was Ceres, goddess from old mythology of growing things and, and farming and, and husbandry. They were patrons of husbandry. So I, I just thought that was really uh, of the time and wanted to comment on it. Also, education. The fact that the women in her land have children, and then they have qualified people to educate those children. They don't take them away from their mothers, but they educate them with proper uh, trained educators. And, um, you know, when you said that, why should... I pay for education and maybe the doctor will look after you. My husband has this crazy uncle who said that exact thing. Why should I have to pay for education? My kids are all grown up. And I didn't, you know, raise a ruckus because family matters and all. But I thought, Max, it's because those kids are going to be counting your pills at the nursing home someday. And you want them to know what they're doing. Um, So, yeah, Kansas especially doesn't seem to value educating our children. And it's very frustrating. And by the way, disclosure, my husband is a teacher. And we have a legislature and a governor right now that just seems like Terry. (laughs) They'll never get it. He'll never see it. And the rest of Kansas seems to be kind of like Jeff and Van, in which they've acclimatized to 
the way things are here and they'd have to go to Finland <laughs> and see what you saw in order to really be woke up. Um, it's kind of frustrating. So I just really liked uh, this chapter. It was so exciting and interesting. And one last little thing I read this morning on NPR's website, a story about how in the 18th and 19th century, there were accounts written and even in newspapers in which women had been found uh, to dress up as men and sometimes even marry women. And so, you know, the gender identity thing and were they lesbian relationships and all that. But I wondered if what if they just did that because it was easier than two women making their way in the world or, um, you know, just because it's easier to to have a married unit not be questioned or be able to get ahead because men could do things women couldn't do at that time. Just socially, legally, lots of reasons why they might have chose to do that rather than any particular gender or sexual reason. Just society. Thank you so much for this podcast. I really uh, enjoy it and appreciate it. And I hope you have a really great day. Bye. I think Brenda's point at the end, wasn't there a movie about that not too long ago with Glenn Close, Albert Knobs? I didn't see it, whichever movie it was that came out. I didn't see it. But I think she's absolutely right. I think there were women who went undercover, as it were, as men, because it was just flat out easier to live. And, uh, and I'm glad we don't live then. Now. So watch Larry Wilmore, have a laugh, watch Gina Davis, have a laugh, go make a penny rug, enjoy your downtime, and we'll be back next week with Chapter 9. Take care. Have a great one. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave a review for us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or subscribe at Subbable. If one audiobook with benefits a week isn't enough for you, you can also sign up for a premium membership. There is a streaming option that sends the premium audio through your smartphone or tablet, or there's a downloading option where you can download the files into your computer's hot little hands. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. 